0: When I first read this psalm, I got a strong sense of two messages. One was of ownership, um, God owns the world, and the other, uh, probably to do with my medical case at the time, was about repetition and life cycles and things. And with further reading, I've come to see that that repetition is there, but it's in a different way to what I anticipated, really. And the story, in a sense, takes us from the creation, a genesis at least, uh, through to Jesus' death. So uh, we sat really in the middle of our theme of the church we we've been going through in sermons from the creation working through to Easter as it comes. So aptly, this sits quite ideally in the middle. So what was this psalm about? And largely I've come to see it as four parts. You might read it as three. Uh, the greatness of God... Who may come close to him, and how might we become close to him? And finally, there's a question, Is who is this great God? And it seems a strange thing to ask, doesn't it? Who is this great God? So why was it written? It was written to celebrate a pivotal moment in the Israelites' history, the ark's movement into Jerusalem now that Ark had been with them for years and years and years in different phases and I've read that even at one time the Ark was lost, it was taken off them in a big battle by uh, Philistines I think it was Uh, stolen from them, the Philistines were joyful about having this this thing that the Jews valued so much but oddly enough wherever the Ark went There were problems, and eventually the Philistines said, we don't want this Ark anymore, you have it back and we'll give you some recompense as well for taking it in the hope that we'll no longer be cursed by it. So um, this Ark was significant in (laughs) in more ways than one. Um, But what we've already learned about the Ark was that it carried those tablets of stone bearing the Ten Commandments, the instructions from God, telling us how... He wishes us to conduct our lives. And for me, God wishes us to live in harmony with him. And a part of doing that is that we live in harmony with each other. In there was also Aaron's rod. Uh, This is a rod which turned into a snake and ate up the other snakes. And for me, this serves to remind us that God's power is greater than the power of other gods. And there was a pot of manna. And for me, this reminds us that if we have faith, God will provide. But there's a little bit more to it than that. It reminds us that God nourishes the soul. And that nourishment helps to sustain us through those hard times, those barren periods that it sustained the Israelites through, their wandering through the desert. So I think that the Ark was a hugely important symbol to the Israelites. It was evidence of God's relationship with the Jews, and it had been them with them from much of the wandering through the desert, and these were the people chosen by God, a powerful God. And I'm not sure that I can really comprehend the fullness of what this must have meant to them. So that's basically why it was written. Now we come to the psalm itself, headed the king of glory and his kingdom. And it starts with the world and all that is in it belong to the Lord. The earth and all who are on it are his. And we have repetition. There's repetition throughout this psalm. Some suggest that it was written as a It was written as a ceremonial piece anyway, but a a priest or a leader might have sung one part and then the second part was sung in response. So it would be like, the world and all that is in it belong to the Lord and the response perhaps was the earth and all that are in it are his. But the repetition does serve as emphasis, doesn't it? And in there, there's that strong sense of ownership everything, everything belongs to God. And maybe I was feeling a bit morbid when I first looked at this, having recently had my diagnosis and things. So it made me think of those burial words, earth to earth, you know, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But in a sense, that's referring back to Adam's punishment in Genesis, hence this link with Genesis or King Solomon's reflections. But we do... Come from the world, and we, our bodies at least, return to the world. But I'm staying with the idea of leadership. You know, Margaret and I live in a house, yeah, and we have a piece of paper that says the house and the garden belongs to us. We own it. We don't own the mineral rights underneath. And we don't own the sky above, just the house and the garden. We have a cat called Tom. He believes the house and the adjacent land is his. And he fights with other cats to lay claim to his territory. I have three beehives, and legally I'm the owner of the bees, you try telling that to the bees. <laughs> Last year, they just kept absconding. They were swarm after swarm, disappeared, much to my dismay. Uh, and now I call myself a bee loser rather than a beekeeper. But <laughs> There we are. But there are birds and slugs and snails, worms and multitudes of other creatures live in our garden. And they all think it's theirs. You know, the house belonged to someone else before we had it. And someone else will own it after we've gone. We're not actually owners at all, are we? We are just custodians. God is the owner. But he's not just the owner of the land. He owns all on it, including us. We are owned by God whether we like it or not. And that had me thinking, is being owned the same as belonging? Is being owned by God the same as belonging to God? For we are all all owned by God, and there are inevitable things in our life, being born, living, and dying. uh, We can't change those things. We have no choice in those things, but we can choose to offer ourselves to God. We can choose to invite him into our lives. We can choose to live our lives in ways more suited to him we can choose to have a relationship with him that we may lead more fulfilling lives and if that were the case i might say might say that we choose to belong to him he will always own us but we can choose to have something better than being owned we can choose to have or we can choose to belong to him by having a relationship with him the psalmist goes on. He built it on the deep waters beneath the earth and he laid the foundations on the ocean depths. And this part is, I think, justifying God's ownership. He made everything with things that belong to him anyway. And you just made some Play Doh models. But what right do you have to claim ownership of those models? It was my (coughs) Play-Doh. Or maybe it was God's Play-Doh. I don't know. So that was about God and his ownership. The next bit is about who. Who has the right? The question is, who has the right to go up Lord's Hill? Who may enter his holy temple? And I think it's worth thinking about what this place means to the Jews. We're talking about Zion. This is Jerusalem. This is the place where Abraham bound his son in offering to God. This is the place where, because of his willingness to sacrifice his son, that God rewarded Abraham. Genesis 22, it says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven for a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars Uh, In the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of our enemies. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because you have obeyed me. A son was offered in sacrifice. Wasn't there another? Another. Important son offered in sacrifice in Jerusalem? Jesus. And there's a massive difference here, I think. Isaac was offered to God, Jesus was offered by God for our redemption. As it says, John three sixteen, I'm sure you all know this, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So maybe now we're beginning to see what an important event is being celebrated here in Jerusalem when this was written the ark of It's evidence of their relationship with God finally arriving at this sacred place. These things coming together. And the psalmist goes on to ask the question then, who has the right to go up Lord's Hill? Who may enter the uh, holy temple? And again, we have that repetition. But it's like, who has the right, but further than that, having got to the holy hill, who may enter the temple? And it seems to be emphasizing the special qualities of a person attempting that challenge. And I liked the phraseology in the Message Bible. It uh, really emphasizes the difficulty of that challenge I think it says who can climb Mount God who can scale the holy north face if we we think about the significance of a north face (laughs) most mountains in the northern hemisphere are in the northern hemisphere so the north face is the coldest but I kind of, when I think about the North Face, it brings me to the North Face of the Iger for some reason. But if you look at that face, and we're talking about this side here, it's the North Face, and if you look at that side on, it is almost vertical. A really difficult challenge. And it's taken, how many lives have I, I've written it down here, 39 lives, I think, of people trying to get up there. In, Germany, in German, it's called the Nordwand, meaning North Wall. But it is known as the Mordwand, meaning the murder wall. It's killed a lot of people. The psalmist goes on to ask, thank you. The psalmist goes on to ask, of the who, uh, it says, those who are pure in act and thought. Who do not worship idols or make false promises. How many of us are able to meet those tough criteria? Uh, All I can say is thank goodness for repentance and forgiveness. But if I might just pack on, pick on those couple of words, that false promises, and in the uh, New King's James Version, it talks about swearing deceitfully. And I'm remembering last week's sermon when Sarah talked about lies and building barriers and how they hamper meaningful communication between each other and with God. And, you know, this can start off Uh, we feel inferior we don't feel good enough and we develop the idea perhaps if it gets worse that we develop the idea that no one could possibly love us in our minds we become unlovable can you imagine what that feels like to be unlovable But we hear about it a lot in the news. We hear of teenagers in particular, but it's not limited to teenagers. They need to be liked on Facebook. It's so desperate to be liked. We hear of self-harming, anorexia, bulimia, drugs, suicide attempts, all those sorts of things. And much of it is because we feel that we can't be loved or we feel that we're not acceptable. So being unlovable makes us feel vulnerable. And so we create a false self, a persona, if you like, and the hope that that persona will be accepted. But it needs constant effort to shore that up. And it prevents people, and it prevents God, knowing the real you. And so the real you becomes increasingly lonely. What's the solution? I think that's the scariest thing ever. Take down the wall. Make yourself vulnerable. Isn't that scary? But I believe that's what we're asked to do. We're asked to come to the Lord as we are. As your true self. And in Joel, he says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever comes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone who asks. And the psalmist goes on to say, And the Lord will bless them and save them. The Lord will, uh, God will declare them Innocent. Such are the people who come to God, who come into the presence of God. And I go back to Abraham, really, because I know he's known as the great faithful one, but he didn't always get things right. In fact, he went against God, didn't he, when he married a second wife? He'd been told that he would get a son, yet he took this into his own hands, and he argued with God in the defense of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet he was given that tremendous blessing. And every one of us has a promise of a tremendous blessing too. You know, the blessing of eternal life. Next, the psalmist refers to the opening of the gates. Fling wide the gates, open the ancient doors, and perhaps this is a reference to the gates of the city of Jerusalem through which the ark would pass on its journey into the mount up to the mount, but symbolizing perhaps Jerusalem give opening access in its heart in the heart of Jerusalem to receive the ark, if we look at the new Uh, NIV version it says lift up your heads you gates lift them up you ancient doors and I think that's referring to us everyone in this room here the psalmist is recognizing that we are gates we are barriers it's us that's not letting the Lord into our soul. Our personal Zion, if you like. And it's almost as if he's saying to us, lift up your eyes, you dunderheads. That's how I kind of read the the way he's saying it. And next is we go on to what's considered to be a prophetic element to this when it asks, who is this great king? Well, I ask, who rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey? A king travelling as a servant. All the while knowing that he was going to his death. Did he not fit that earlier definition of who could go up to the mountain, who could enter the uh, the temple, those who are pure in act and thought, who do not worship false idols or make false promises. Jesus, I think, is the only person ever to have met those criteria. But the very bit, along with that last bit, I think Belich relates to what we must do in order to belong to God in terms of the gates, we need to open our hearts. He said we are gates. We need to open our hearts to him. And Jesus tells us that we must seek him, ask him to come into our lives and receive his Holy Spirit. From the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he says, But seek fast his kingdom and his righteousness, And all these things will be given to you as well. And in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone, everyone who asks, receives. No one, sorry, the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The message is clear, isn't it? The buck rests with us. God is there. We have to take that step. We have to believe in him. We have to have faith in him. And he will guide us so that, in truth, we will come to know what belonging to the lord really means now i put that some the psalm really sum it up god is lord you can be in his presence you only have to ask